Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa, and welcome to The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey with Peter Bale from Hoon Bay. How are you, Peter? Bernard, I'm pretty good, thank you. I've got COVID, and so I'm just bloody desperate to see you and Simon and uh, all our audiences, even if some of them do think I'm a prat sometimes, although they also say, just keep being a prat because we love it. But anyway... This is the most social thing I've done this week. Um, My daughter and uh, another person we both know has delivered me little food parcels from time to time. Oh, right. And they've slipped it under the door and then run away? More or less, they've (laughs) slipped under the door and and run away. And I'm I'm very grateful to them them both. Otherwise, I might have gone completely round the bend. I mean, I have more or less gone round the bend. So they didn't have like a a small hose pipe they just... Put in the soup, you know, through the. Well, yes, it's more, more been more the Chardonnay and the Sauvignon Blanc, yeah. But yes, exactly. <laughs> That's good for your chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I think I've been very grateful, and I was actually thinking, you know, I having avo- having avoided COVID completely over the last three years of being in New Zealand, really? which is pretty amazing. I was both mm. very grateful to Jacinda and also to uh, Michael Baker and mm. Ashley, and I was thinking that you know my discipline about it has kind of eased off in the last couple of months, hence getting it now for the first time. But I still wrote to the, all, all the restaurants that I'd been to, everybody I'd seen in the last five days, 10 days or so, because I just, you know, I don't want other people getting this. So I'm still trying to be responsible. I'm trying to be a good boy, Bernard. Yeah, no, exactly right. I think you're right. A lot of people have forgotten about COVID and uh, sort of are not taking it um, as seriously. I must say I've become actually more conscious of it um, over the over the months and years, and try wherever I can to mask up going into you know places where it's it's a bit riskier. So, yeah, well, I think I think Bernard, I think it's still we still have to be responsible for each other. We still have this new variant mm. that's come out now, and it knocks you about. I mean, I've I've had I've been you know turbocharged and had as many bloody vaccinations as you possibly can have. And I'm very grateful for that. But I also had pneumonia a couple of, a few years ago when I was working at CNN and I was traveling a lot. You know, I literally was that that passenger in seat 1A coughing and spluttering and um, communicating bad things to everybody. So, you know, I, I don't want to be typhoid Mary. No. So what are we doing today? Now, also, you have to, speaking of being oh, ill, yes. you have to explain why we missed last week. And also, I think we do have to work out that if I'm your co-host, we have to work out a way that we can, you know, you can flick it to me so that even mm. those who think I'm a prat can still, oh, yeah. you know, no, tune in. I, I, absolutely. Uh, yes. It was one of those last minute things. I'd been on a bus and got off the bus feeling very, very green about the gills and just really couldn't. You wouldn't have wanted me on, on yeah. a camera or... Are you a car sick person, Bernard? You don't strike me as a car sick person. Well, I've managed to avoid... It, it happened to be a bus on a very windy road. And when I was a kid, uh, we did get car sick a oh, lot. God. So it was me and my three brothers in the backseat of the Kingswood. And we used to go to from uh, a place called Galatea, so mm-hmm. Eastern Bay of Plenty, yeah. across the old Napier Taupo Road. Jesus. In the 70s, and it was mostly gravel at that point, and it was very windy. It's not the the very smooth path that it is now. Yeah. And so we, all four of us, would get sick at various points along the Good trip. Good Lord, that's disgusting. That sounds absolutely so we're all ghastly. Slithering, yeah. slithering back and forth in the back seat of this vinyl seated. In your own, in your own vomit, suit. like a bunch of sailors on the Endeavour. Yeah. <laughs> And really, you know, we all tried to get, hey, Dad, stop the car. Yeah. And um, Jesus Christ, you're just bloody toughing the hell up. No, there you, no, no. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. There, so it was, you know, often there was streaks down the side of the car. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> Bernard. So TMI, too much information. So was the reason that you were taking a bus, though, from Glenorchy to Queenstown was because you were too stingy to have taken the, the Kaka Learjet down there? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I should have taken the Learjet. Mm-hmm. It would have been better. Um, but... But uh, no, it was it was a great a great weekend. I really enjoyed it and got to talk quite a bit about um, 
transitions, and actually there was a lot of discussion about security and AI, which which was quite eye opening. Oh, really? What was what, what what were you speaking at, Bernard? Was this at your conference, or was it just you know personal conversations about security and AI? It was just personal conversations about geostrategic issues. It was it was fun. I really enjoyed it, and um, yeah. a bunch of people that I I'd seen seen before, and it was great. So you still you weren't too sick to speak. No, but so basically this was Friday night. By the time I got there, there wasn't much on. And then by yeah. Saturday morning, I was fine. So it was it was good. Oh, good. So you didn't miss it. So, but we can apologize to all of our lovely listeners. For, yeah, sorry about that, guys. You know, oh, no, no. It's just because David Coombs and a couple of others said to me, you know, in fact, um, Professor Patman said, you know, what happened? Where were we? You know. Yeah. And I so it's very it, nice to be missed. Thank you very much. Mm. Yeah, well, good. for Bernard to be missed. Yes. So today we've got um, quite a bit uh, coming up on not just the climate, but international issues. Well, tell them where you are, though, Bernard, too, more importantly. I'm in Singapore and uh, enjoying it here. This is another one of these painfully carbon-emitting trips, which I'm going to try try to reduce as much as I can. And, and um, Well, just offset it by just walking around to my place for dinner when you, know, when you get back. I think it's a lot you know, more walking than that. This is the problem. <laughs> and, yeah, you can only plant so many trees. And um, this is something we, we're starting to come to grips with. And no doubt there'll be plenty of people on the call here wondering, ah, enough with the flying. And I get it, actually. Um, this, well, speaking this of whom, that's a very yes. nice segue to Catherine. Yes, it Hi, is. Catherine. Hello. Hi. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Good, good. Uh, we've, we've sort of segued into talking about the climate, and it's been an election where... There's been some climate talk, but for me, the really um, sort of disappointing thing was the little exchange there was in the debate a couple of weeks ago, oh. where uh, the two leaders, the two Chris's, were asked about what they were doing to reduce climate emissions, and their answers were, we were recycling and we've got electric cars. Well, the electric um, car one is not completely bad, but yes, carry on. Well, yeah, and and do you think a New Zealand um, Prime Minister is going to say, "Jesus Christ, we've decided to stop eating meat, and uh, we're also well, we're also eating only plant-based milk"? Oh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> I've just lost my cattle. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing, actually, is that you know, eating less meat or taking meat out of your diet is one of the more effective things you can do. <laughs> you, you know, as far as behaviour changes go, yeah. and instead, recycling is something like number sixty on the list of, of you know, it's a good thing to do. It's not a bad thing to do. But you don't necessarily recycling for, um, for for um, for emissions reduction. <laughs> exactly, it's a, it's a good thing to do anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and and the same with um with driving an electric car. A much better thing to do is to mode shift to public transport, walking, cycling, oh, you know, Jesus. all of those sort of things. Can I just say there's going to be no mode shift in the bail household? Thank, thank you really? very much. Well, I do have an AT card, but when mode yes. shift, Jesus, and- I want a really, really sexy electric car, Catherine. I was just looking today at whether I should spend a hundred thousand, hundred thirty thousand oh. New Zealand dollars on a nineteen sixty two mm. Volkswagen Carmen gear that's been converted to electric. I bloody oh. love that idea. I don't think you understand just how wonderful it is to glide <laughs> down a leafy boulevard on an electric bike that's doing all the work. Oh no, I totally do. It's no, no, I absolutely do. Yeah, but I'm too young for an electric bike. Really? <laughs> but you, what you could get is one of those really, really uh, racked up electric scooters, you know, the ones that go like 100 kilometres an hour. I do, I do. The ones that Patrick Smelly tested for, um, oh. for not, not scooters, he, he tested a very natty little electric motorbike. Mm. And you're right, I have thought about that. So yes, more vehicles with more uh, wheels is what I'm after, Catherine. And I, I had I, an electric motorbike in, in Hanoi for a couple of years and I loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because Hanoi actually really needs a lots of electric bikes as opposed to the putt-putts with the lots of smoke, which is a problem. So, Catherine, rather than talk about our own modes of transport, because you know Bernard's Bernard's mode of transport is a seven 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 to um to Singapore, not um, every day. But do you yeah, want to bring no. us up to date with it with the climate stuff this week? Because it, it, both domestic, but also there was a very interesting IEA report about how long how, how much we have to get rid of, but also a very positive statement, which I may prove to be a little um, half-assed by Fatty Birol, the um, head of the IEA, that the pace of development of wind and solar globally was just astounding and was ahead of target. Yeah. I had to laugh, actually, when I heard his, because in his statement he said that they felt that demand for fossil energy 
was going to peak before 2030 and the demand would come down after that. And I, you know, I seriously have my doubts about that. Mm. Um, mm. You know, at the moment, if you looked at total global energy, you know, sources of energy, wind and solar account for something like 1.6%, yeah. you know, like, and this is after the 30 years of of a transition, a carbon transition going on. So even if you double or triple or quadruple that, that's still a hell of a long way to go. And also, it, it, it's also an important point to make, I think, is that if you're not decreasing fossil fuel usage at the same time as you're building um, renewable energy, then you're not actually helping the situation yeah. at all. In fact, you could be making it worse in terms of other planetary boundaries because every time the energy supply goes up, material throughput goes up, GDP goes up, and you threaten other planetary boundaries. I, I do I do wonder about the IEA when it suggests that somehow demand for energy is going to plateau and then fall, but we know that GDP is globally rising, you know, 2 3% per annum pretty much every year. Uh, they're essentially making the assumption that there's going to be a very rapid and large disconnect between GDP growth and energy use which we haven't really seen ever, have we? They've actually recently just had to, they've put out a new, some new pathways, and within only one year they've had to remodel their assumptions because a lot of the things that are supposed to be happening, like carbon capture and storage mm. and you know hydrogen development, all these other things aren't happening at the pace that they anticipated, so they're having yeah. to change their lines. And some of the, the stuff that they have in their modelling, it's just like you get a line going along like this and then suddenly it just yeah. abruptly drops off and they've you can see they've drawn a straight line from where we are to where we need to be and just mm. kind of assume a bunch of things can happen in between to get there. Not not specific New Zealand questions, Catherine, but I, I noticed a couple of things this week. The US LNG industry is booming, as you probably know, for the export of LNG mostly to Europe to offset Russia, which is one of the reasons I always mm. slightly, or no, totally mistrusted Senator Cruz objections to Nord Stream. But this LNG is, is from fracking in Texas, yep. Uh, yep. from the Permian, the amazing Permian Basin. So that's going to go you know, absolutely gigantic. And then Rishi Sunak this week, or the UK government, announced the um, development of, the, I think it's Rosebud, which is kind of ironic if it was Rosebud, Rosebank. Rosebank, yeah. La the last um, Rosebud, of course, was the... Um, Citizen Kane. <laughs> Citizen Kane scooter, exactly, which is not, not entirely... We could, we're not allowed digressions in this. I'm the one who does the digressions, thank you, Catherine. But, you know, this is one of the largest developments in the North Sea since the North Sea was first discovered. There's virtually no gas. It's all oil. It's actually Norwegians, the Norwegian, mainly Norwegians who are developing it. And they will get, mm. I think it's $97 per... Uh, $100, not £97 per 100 of investment back in tax from yep. developing this oil field. I mean, and then you've got this other thing that Rishi Sunak's doing, which I think we're going to see in New Zealand, or to some extent we certainly have, which is this going back on various net zero commitments and this kind of friend yep. of the car. And I can tell you, I think we're going to see friend of the car coming back in, the, in, in New Zealand. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just think they've underestimated how hard some of these changes are actually going to be, how steep the curve is if you actually want to aim for net zero. And I don't think they've communicated that very clearly to their populations at all. No. A lot of the hardest changes, they push them out into the next electoral cycle, hoping that the hard or, stuff or will the be done five. by somebody yeah, else. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and they also kind of build on these assumptions about our people will be richer in the future, so they'll be able to afford to do more of the hard lifting, heavy lifting then, yep. or we'll have some new technology that will do it all for us and we won't have to make Magical thinking. Yeah, magical mm. thinking. Yeah. And now, and as soon as the mag magical thinking kind of starts to enter into the phase where you actually need to deliver these things, yeah, I think they're going to push them back out. It's not it's not going to be very fun to watch, not very edifying. And, and the long-term consequences, or even not even that long-term, quite short-term, are catastrophic. It's very interesting to me with it when if I look at the UK where I of course I used to live and I just think which focus group are they listening to because somebody has told them that being the friend of the car owner is going to be the right thing and I suspect it's oh. a little bit like some of the things here the whispering in ears here too yeah I did see yeah. a um a promotion or or a description of a six wheel drive Ford Ranger that can be specially made today, and I and I was so close to ordering one just to piss everybody off. That, I just, but um, it, it is 
It is really remarkable. The whole, the, the you mm. know, Rishi Sunak's now talking about reducing council's powers to impose 20 kilometer an hour speed zones, all of this kind yeah. of thing. And yet, and I can just see there's, there's something we could, we'll talk about this, I guess, when we get to New Zealand politics, but there's a lot of kind of eliding going on between yeah. various right wing ideas, the climate and all sorts of things. And they're coming here as well as, you know, within this, within the bat of an eye. And then you get this happy, happy, clappy kind of, oh, it's all on track for green growth and we're going to do all of these things and build all this renewable energy and it's all going to be fine. And the gap is just between reality and and what's, you know, what's actually happening um, or, you yeah. know, the, the mythical visions of the future are just is just getting, mm. turning into a crevasse. It's all telescoping in over the yeah. next year. In fact, this year, this year really has been the year where not only has it gotten much warmer than we thought it was going to be, but the uh, weather events have been more sort of dramatic and catastrophic. For example, this weekend, there's a, a really big chance of an enormous dump of rain on New York City and Long Island. Oh, we'll be reading a lot about that then. Because yeah. it's always, you know, there'll be some lunatic tied with a rope to a lamppost being blown to buggery. <laughs> the Americans do that sort of weather. They do weather that very well. So well yep. don't they? Yep. And, and it really is the rubber hitting the road. You either, either you do something about it or you have to acknowledge that you're not doing something about it. Yeah. So how do we bring it back to New Zealand, Bernard, Bernard and Catherine? Because, you know, I mean, I, I, we do like to tour the horizon, but we've got an election going on. It seems to be heading very strongly towards various parties that support the motorists and support a huge amount of individualism, mm. what can we do? What's the well, message for New Zealanders? I, I just wish somebody would be honest about what our real options are here because, you know, there's an enormous amount of disruption coming mm -hmm. up for us no matter what we do. Either there's a lot of disruption from a very abrupt decarbonisation process or there's a lot yeah. of disruption from climate, actual climate change. And, in fact, we... Best case scenario, we get a lot of disruption from both because the climate stuff is going to happen anyway. So, yeah, I just don't think they've been honest enough with people about what this really looks like um, and what the consequences are. And the consequences mm. might not be just the physical ones, but also other forces pushing down on New Zealand that the politics can't control. So, for yes. example, finance. So when you look at what's happening with insurers, just in the last couple of weeks, IAG, which is state AMI and NZI Insurance, have announced they're, they're pulling out of insuring the Category 3 properties and are looking to dramatically reprice the Category 2 properties. They're going through the country, mm -hmm. street by street, gully by gully, floodplain by floodplain, and dramatically repricing. And what we've seen in other countries is the insurers have pulled out completely. Once the insurers really start talking to the banks here, uh, that and because of the importance of um, of a property being bankable... Oh, the government will be the last line of resort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, this is the thing. We're going to have really big debates about, you know, whether or not all of those frontline properties at Omaha get bailed out by taxpayers. Well, bugger Omaha. Jesus Christ, where I live, as I know, Bernard, I just discovered the other day that there's going to be six months building work next door, which I totally support, of course, mm. to reinforce the cliff where, the, where uh, it fell away from the apartment right. block. And now, just to sort of completely complicate this and, and probably make Catherine's eyes roll, and I was going to discuss this in last week's one, I went up in a helicopter the other day around Auckland. It was an extremely economical little weenie helicopter, if I can Oh, one of those Robinson ones. No, no. It was a dear little French thing, the size of an acorn, and I squeezed myself into its little capsule and was taken off. And it was absolutely gorgeous to, to look over Auckland, but to go round the inner Waitamata coastline to the Manukau, the damage is just spectacular. Mm. Of course, the damage is not caused by the helicopter's own emissions, of course. It's, I just had to go up and see it. So it was an entirely professional exercise. But, you know, the damage on some of the coastal properties is just absolutely phenomenal. Mm. And, and a lot of it you can't see as well, like around Titarangi. You know, it's whole hillsides the, and right up into the, um, in, into the Waitakaris and around Whatapu. It's just phenomenal. So, yeah, we are in the middle of this, and I think we should just go out in helicopters a lot more to see how bad it is. What I am kind of find interesting is the big sinkholes opening up under major new highways that oh. they've just built. I mean, good luck with your electric cars across the sinkholes. Well, when, you say, when, you say, when you say major new highways, isn't this the one uh, – the, the one the, well, up north. Actually, oh, the one up north? Oh, I, <laughs> oh is there one, in Poo, one on the way to Puhoi as well? 
There's a reason they call it Poo no, Hoy now. New part of the motorway that goes up up north um, has got some severe subsidence issues going on up oh, yeah, because of yeah, all the rain. But, but now we yeah. can't swim or surf or fish in mm. the Waitematara at the moment yeah. because of a bloody thing in, in Parnell. Now, you know, we know some people who live in Parnell and it's their turds, not mine, that are going in there at the moment. It's, it's, I'm very, very concerned about it. But as you just slightly digress back to Bernard's trip to Queenstown, this is all very good things for three waters, right? Yeah, and it, it, it's a another symptom in this election where we're not addressing the real issues. Mm. You know, we have population growth running at 100,000 per year. We're not investing in the infrastructure that's needed for it. We haven't invested in infrastructure for the last 30 years. Some of these things are now coming home to roost, yep, like they really the are. collapse of this big pipe. And it is something that, again, we're not talking about. All the main parties are loosening migration settings and are very happy to take the money from the extra GST and income taxes and uh, the extra votes from um, median voters happy that their land prices are going yeah. up with all this migration and the rents on their rental properties. Catherine, next, next week, let's do a little session in your one. What can we do journalistically to do better at this? Because you're, you know, you're not a traditional journalist, you're a, you're a climate expert. Because no. I think we need to address some of these issues about why, why these questions are not fully being absorbed and understood. It's, it's, it's also very easy to run away from them too, you know, to, because they're a bit scary, mm. which is the populist message. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think that would be great. Yep. Yeah, thank yep. you. Yeah. No, Catherine, right. thank you very much. And speaking of big pipes, there's Robert. Jeez. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Hi. How are you? Great to it's see you. It's very good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. Bernard, Bernard groveled and apologised for not, not being there l last week, but he, he wasn't very well, and he, didn't, he wasn't prepared to hand you and, you and I the keys to the, to the kingdom. Well, next, next time I'm, I'm not feeling well and we have enough time, I will throw the keys at Peter. And uh, <laughs> he can, he can, he can uh, fire up the um, electric V-dub. So, Robert, how are you? I mean, what do you, what's what's on your? I mean, I know what's on my international radar, and I sent you, I think, my thing this week. But um, what's what's on your international radar? What are you? What's what's causing it to go beep when you look across the spectrum? Well, I, I think some of the usual things and some of the things that we've discussed before. Um, I think the U.S.-China relationship is very interesting, mm. and uh, I think. Uh, the Ukraine situation is conflicting versions of what's happening there. Um, uh, the Nagano-Karabakh uh, situation uh, flared up this mm -hmm. week. So, yeah, I'm also interested in the lack of foreign policy coverage in our election. Oh, God. So, so all right, let's, yeah. let's start with that and work backward, not to turn this into the media show. But I had a little conversation right. with our lovely friend Patrick Smelly about this the other day on Twitter because a young, quite well-known New Zealand journalist tweeted, essentially, why are we even asking the party leaders about foreign policy when, they, when they're both on the same page? And I thought, are they? No, you know, I don't not. believe that Jerry Brown, I don't believe that Jerry Brownlee and Nana Mahuta are anywhere near on the same page. Well, they could be. But one way of testing that out is to ask them some decent questions. And one thing that really disappointed me, although it improved in the second leaders debate, but the first leaders debate on uh, TVNZ, where they were both asked a question about what would New Zealand's position be if China invaded Taiwan. By definition, neither politician could answer that without causing an international incident. Mm. So to me, that was very disappointing. A better question would have been to both leaders, what would be your number one foreign policy priority if you're elected? And I think a lot of Kiwis would have been interested in that because there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, some of us feel that New Zealand's not doing enough in terms of supporting Ukraine, for example, it'd be interesting to hear what the two leaders feel. And, of course, there's the AUKUS question. Yeah, Robert, I think we need an entirely new Substack or blog or, you know, some sort of major commentator, possibly a journalist with some international experience, to just write regularly about, about and possibly interview there you are, professors from... <laughs> Job for you. What a brilliant <laughs> idea. But, Robert, it is true. I mean, it just it is so bizarre that we are completely independent, mm. completely dependent on international affairs and international revenue and everything like that. And I had to listen to Chris Hipkins speaking to Alistair Campbell on the excellent mm. The Rest is Politics leaders, leaders session. And Chris Hipkins came across as highly intelligent, um, thoughtful, the normal considerate sort of decent bloke from lower heart, but he guaranteed he wasn't talking about bloody sausage rolls. He was talking about China and really important stuff. Mm. 
That, that, that's a really interesting, um, uh, I'll put in a link to that uh, interview into the... Um, this was Chris Hipkins and Alistair Campbell. Yeah, it was really good. I'm yeah. sorry, no, I should have it, sent it because we, we basically communicate all the time, just whinging and complaining and worrying when I'm going to get a new media career. Now, shall we move on for a minute to, because I think you're absolutely right, shall we move on to a little bit to Ukraine because I think we've reached peak Ukraine and I think, mm. I'm not saying it's a done deal, but there is no penetration of the uh, Russian lines. The Russian lines are so formidable and so long. And, you know, even the US government shutdown now is linked to Ukraine. Are we are we at grave risk of just... No, sort of- I don't buy this. I, I don't think it's it's a done deal or it's reached stalemate. I, I think, in fact, the last week has been pretty sensational for the Ukrainians. I mean, they, the attack, um, which they took out quite a substantial leadership of the Russian Navy's Black Sea Fleet. Mm. We don't know, of course, whether Admiral Zokolov is dead or not. Apparently, he's he, his life Jazz after hands. death and all that, you know, <laughs> videos. And <laughs> We'll have to wait on that one. We do know that Russians are very reluctant to openly acknowledge uh, reverses like that. But the irrespective of whether er- Admiral Zokolov is alive, this was an incredible attack in broad daylight. Mm. Uh, they not only hack, uh, attacked the naval headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, but they also clearly targeted what was a meeting amongst the leadership. Uh, so that shows they have pretty good intelligence on what's going on. And uh, Crimea is becoming it's becoming a pattern now. They are really targeting Crimea. Mm. And even the Russian commentators are acknowledging this now. So I don't think we're at stalemate because Crimea has been used as a vital artery for supplying um, some of the Russian position and launching attacks on Ukraine. Yeah, I mean more about our international position, Robert, whether it's just getting, I, I have this nervousness that, you know, there needed to be a breakthrough. You know, I was trying not to be sort of too campaigning on this, but that there needed to be a, you know, a really serious penetration. But also I think that the, the scale of those Russian defences are absolutely formidable. And then, as you say, though, we've got these rather striking spectaculars as al-Qaeda used to call theirs, into Crimea and so on. Well, uh, you know, the, it, it, it's amazing that Russia, uh, Ukraine hasn't got a navy, but it's effectively paralysing the Russian <laughs> navy in the Black Sea. Damn right. And yeah. uh, uh, it's not to be underestimated. This is what I call the slow chipping away of the Russian position. And yep. it's going to have big consequences shortly because these are logistical targets. I mean, you're a professor of international affairs, as far as I understand, as opposed to the you know a military strategist. What what are you thinking oh, sure. at the moment about the? I mean, of course, we're going to promote you to being a military strategist when it suits us as well. Oh yes, please. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Jesus, I do the jokes here, all right? It's just, yeah. Um, sorry. And, uh, no, sorry. And uh, I know my place. <laughs> if only any of the three of us did know our places, we wouldn't probably wouldn't be here. Um, um, but Robert, what are, you, what are you thinking about the international solidarity behind Ukraine? Well, it, it, it's, I think it's reasonably secure in Europe, but I, it's fraying, with the exception of Hungary, of course, but they've always been in the Putin camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's seriously fraying. I, I think the United States situation is making many countries like New Zealand and Australia nervous. I was in Canberra a uh, week before last, and it was very interesting talking mm-hmm to Australian military personnel and diplomatic personnel. And they were saying much what's being said in New Zealand, that the prospect of a Trump administration would probably be tantamount to ending American support for Ukraine. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah and, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would. There are certainly some Republicans committed to Ukraine, but whether they would hold sway over someone like uh, Mr. Trump's leadership or even DeSantos is, yeah. is questionable. Which, which I think we have to we have to think that that's one one of the reasons why Biden agreed to the attackums being sent because he wants to get in and get as much as possible through now. Yeah, but right? he's measuring these things out. He needs mm. to be a bit bolder, I think. Mm. And uh, you know, it, it, it's it's drip feeding the F 16s arriving in October or whatever, mm. and and it's all being doled out very carefully. And um, I, I know Mr. Biden, it may be for domestic political reasons and also international reasons doesn't want to escalate too quickly. Um, but, the you know, the Russians have taken a bit of a, a hammering uh, cumulatively in the last few months. They're, yes, their defences are holding reasonably well, but they, you know, there's some telltale signs of fraying yeah. the Russian position. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I still think the Ukrainians have overall moved forward 
It's not as quickly as they would like, uh, but I think this sort of operations we've discussed before never been attempted before, no. and it's never been attempted, certainly without an air force. Yeah, no, we're all we're all watching. But and also, Robert, just one one small question, which is slightly obscure: the Slovakia elections could give us another Hungary. You know, there's a there's a there's yeah. a you know a chap a chap in Slovakia who was another you know another EU country, very much an all bound kind of guy, billionaire, mm. you know, naughty chap, looks like he's a populist or is a populist. I'm sorry. You know, what's 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 you know, I just worried about. You know the whole European edifice as well. I know, I know, and I, I think this will go on while Mr. Putin's in power. And you know, I mean, you take—we've discussed this before, so I don't want to drone on about it. But the far right in Germany—they've been yeah. funded by Moscow oh, yeah. for a long time, and oh, everyone yeah. knows this. And uh, you know, you say people say, "Oh, that's a conspiracy." Well, from Mr. Putin's point of view, if he can sow discord, whether it's in the United States or in Germany or anywhere else, it's a victory. He's not worried about the outcome. Just pivoting to um, the United States and China, one of the things that's been somewhat encouraging in the last week or so is this talk of a summit between mm. Xi and Biden and Xi going to the APEC leaders meeting in San Francisco later this year. And also that there's been some of these working groups set up on the side between the United States and China to try to work out or at least try to manage some of the conflict that's yeah. going on behind the scenes and things like chips and trade and various uh, bits and pieces. What's what's your view on how that's how that's um, burbling along, that grinding tension between the two? Well, there is a grinding tension, but I think that Biden's position is that America won't shirk from competition or engagement with China. And of course, they do. We've discussed this before, but she and Biden actually have a personally good relationship. Theoretically, yeah, uh, it's quite yeah. warm. Yes, and it goes back a long way to when Biden was vice president, and oh, right. uh, he cultivated quite a friendly relationship when, as vice president, uh, with the then new president of China in 2012. So, the other thing is, I think uh, there is. We've discussed this again. Uh, another issue: the game of musical chairs that's going on. In Mr. Xi's uh, leadership, yep. with the foreign minister going missing and then dismissed, the defence minister going missing, and presumably he's going to get the same outcome. Uh, I'm wondering if this is a way of Mr. Xi is signalling to the Americans, look, I was badly represented with regard to the Ukraine conflict. I know it's a catastrophe. You know, is this a way in which authoritarian leaders signal that they're kind of backing off? I don't know, but. I think the other thing is, I think she's under pressure within the Central Committee of the ruling Communist Party in China because the economy is going, uh, the Chinese economy is not doing well. Mm. But we have to be careful, with Robert, if, if, if God forbid that we should ever, you know, talk about some things that we've talked about before. You've apologised, I think, now twice for talking about things that we've talked about before. <laughs> I, I listen to about 8,000 podcasts a week, and if middle-aged men couldn't repeat themselves you know, when uh, we know that most dinner time conversations will be gone, and so would most podcasts. Well, we do have a particular set of skills. Yes, I yes. Mean, well, middle aged men. <laughs> no, we, 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 we do actually, you know, get involved. Here a we recount these things. And on that note, um, A, to improve, we're not just a bunch of middle aged men, but also that we do have a particular set of skills. I wanted to invite Josie oh. Pagani into the. Jesus, she gets into the star. The, it's like dancing with the bloody stars when she comes on, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's great to see you, Josie. Actually, we should do that, Bernard. We should have... When, uh, Robert's already said we need to do a live session, and I found just the right place <laughs> quite near me to do it in. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. no, but, we definitely need to have... There needs to be a stadium. I think no, there should no, no, be... No, 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 no. We, we're, not, we're not ready for a stadium yet. We're not, you stadium? Know, I mean, Will uh, we fill it? Yeah, no, I know. I, I have not... <laughs> I have a place very close. I've just thought of this week, and it's bloody brilliant. Now, may I ask Robert a question, for God's sake, before Josie so rudely? Because I think it's one that Josie will find important, and not question to find, but a subject. I was flabbergasted by Biden's announcement of, as he said, $40 billion. Oh! $40 million <laughs> of aid to the Pacific. <laughs> yes, and yes. we're going to support you. We're going to... And then, within two days, the, well, no, I think it was the next day, the Department of Defense released some absolutely fabulous pictures of Minuteman missiles hitting Kwajalein Atoll in the Pacific. Like, we're going to give you money and we're going to give you independence, but here comes our missiles. You know, what the hell is going on with the US engagement of the Pacific? 
both of you? Well, I just, yeah, I think you're right to draw the contrast between the fact Mr. Biden stressing that America's engagement in the Pacific Island states is not an attempt to isolate China and it's not an attempt to revisit some sort of great power rivalry. But at the same same time, that that, that significant timing with regard to the intercontinental Mm. ballistic missile was very, very interesting. And um, yeah, I mean, I think the Americans still, despite denials, do see the Pacific Island states in, in very strong strategic terms. And I think from the American point of view, China is seen as a big rival and a big threat. I mean, it, it registered with the Americans. They made no bones about it that the Solomon Islands leader did not, he was not part yeah. of the delegation that visited the United States. A number of American officials said they were disappointed. I think they put quite a lot of political capital in trying to make sure he would be there and they didn't turn up. And so maybe that's seen that he's sort of lost to the Chinese camp. I don't know. But uh, I, I think the Americans... They're talking a bit like the New Zealanders and the Australians in saying they want to address the needs of the people in the region. But um, I think when you listen to American commentators, they're still interpreting the importance of the Pacific Island states in terms of the competition with China. Yeah. Robert, you you, you just said a minute ago that it was interesting that the Defence Department released those images then and had presumably also done the test a little earlier in September. What do you think the motivation was to do it then? Or was it just being a bit gormless or a bit unsubtle? Uh, I think it's clearly, uh, I think it's an indication that the Americans are saying to the Chinese um, that we, we will compete with you in the region. Uh, I think that it's very difficult to put another spin on it, really, uh, or another interpretation. Josie, what do you think, please? Yeah, I mean, so the Pacific Island Forum is coming up in... Um, Early November in the Cook Islands, um, and I, I don't think you can under you can't underestimate how wily and clever the Pacific are being about managing mm. this geopolitical mm. stoush between the U.S. bloc and the Chinese mm. bloc. Um, I mean, one example is you know last year when they all went to the Oval Office, the leadership went to the of the Pacific, uh, got invited to see Biden, and you know Prime Minister Fiamme of Samoa, you know. She was one of the very strong voices saying to the Americans, um, you, you can, you're going to take all of us. You're not just going to, you're not just going to invite the US yes. friendly country. You're going to mm. invite all of us. We go as a region or we don't go at all. And so, you know, it, it, and, and Biden and the US administration agreed to that. So they're, mm. they're, you know, and this will be a big topic of discussion at the Pacific Island Forum in November. Um, they're very aware of what's going on. And, and if anything, yeah. The, you know, PIF and the country leadership, countries' leadership are asking countries like New Zealand and Australia. I had to think for a second what PIF was for a moment, but Pacific Islands Forum, yep. Okay, okay. yep, mm. yep, yep. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, we can learn from them. No, I absolutely agree with Josie. I, I think that's the key point, that the Pacific Island states' leaders are determined not to buy in. In fact, they reject becoming pawns in a great power rivalry game between the US and China. And I think the Americans are paying lip service to their denial of their participation in that. But I still think the Americans are playing the long game. They're saying, oh, yes, we can address their their needs, like uh, trying to ameliorate climate change and help them with the infrastructure projects. But in the long run, that means they'll be favorably inclined to us. And why are they favorably yeah. inclined to us? Because it will help us see off the US competition, uh, the China competition. Robert, did you hear the, I loved it, Prime Minister Rambuka of Fiji, his comment when he was here in New Zealand, he said, um, we've been here before, you know, remember the Second yeah. World War? The Pacific yeah. was a theatre of war and we were we were in the middle of a great power rivalry. So, you know, they're going, you don't need to teach us how to do this stuff, perhaps you need to listen. Actually, that's a really <laughs> interesting thing you say that, Josie, because I, I was really struck by several things. I'd love you to address this because I'm sure you're the best person to address it unless the Professor of International Affairs wants to come in. Rambuka's rehabilitation as a world leader, or at least a regional leader, is pretty flabbergasting to me since I covered the 1987 Fiji coups and played golf with him several times, or at least followed him round the golf course interviewing him every morning for about two months. I can't remember which, which coup it was. 
<coughs> but you know, he's. A, I'm looking for. Did did he make you keep the score as well? Oh, I could probably go. Actually, I have got a, a Rambuka T-shirt uh, somewhere. But you know, this, that doesn't sound to me like you were taking that coup very seriously, Peter. Well, excuse me, if you have access to the coup leader, because your because your stringer is writing his autobiography, which was a slight drawback but anyway following him around the golf course was an extremely good way to be close to him and it did it did, but i just the rehabilitation of rambuka is quite extraordinary mm-hmm. to me so, but i think you're absolutely right the, the, robert has often talked to us in the past about small nations getting together i mm. mean which is jerry brownie going to do that is Ma- nanaya mahuta the better one to do that what's the segue there according, did you notice that Pun? according to um the debate the the leaders debate this week was it last night, the night before? I've lost track of time now. Um, where Christopher Luxon was asked, who would he prefer as foreign affairs minister, Judith Collins or Winston Peters? And his answer was, <laughs> I haven't given it much. Which is, I think you're meant to pick the person from your party, Mr yeah, Luxon. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to me that he was having a bit of a tough time in that debate generally. And uh, I think he... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think he was not as composed as he would have been normally on that question. Mm. No, and it was interesting, actually, we were talking about the debate. Um, uh, Luxon was quite weak on crime, which was really a comfort zone for national right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Labour dropped the ball on the crime. Um, They've done the tough on causes of crime and they've just forgotten the Tony Blair winning formula of tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Um, and, and I thought that he was he revealed his weakness there where he was asked about gang patches and he's, you know, they're going to ban gang patches and um, gang funerals and they're just going to ban it all. Um, and Christopher Hipkins, uh, Chris Hipkins was, was, I think, very wily where he turned around and said, well, how are you going to get the patches off the gang members? Are, are the cops just going to come and tear them off? Or Yeah, that won't, that won't be conflict at all. Yeah. And I think what it reveals about a weakness for Christopher Luxon is that he's he's not good when he's pushed on a very direct question, how will you do that? How will you ban the patches? And he can't actually answer it because actually it's a really hard one to answer. One of the things that Robert Robert raised at the beginning of before you came in, unfortunately, we need to have you in at the beginning of all um, of these sessions, I think, but was whether anybody in New Zealand gives a shit about the foreign policy of either of the parties. Because I was saying to Robert that I had an encounter the other night where I saw somebody, a journalist, saying, why are we even asking the the leaders about international affairs? Because they they both think the same thing. And I just don't think that's true. We need to get more of this, don't we? Can I just say that was one thing that really stood out to me was the mm. lack of detail and even interest. Like the energy levels in the studio just went vroom yep. when they talked about defence mm. and orcas and um, the, the you know China v US and so on and, and whether we would be combat ready. Should we be combat ready? I'm sorry, but a leader of the country right now at this time in history with hot wars happening, you know, on the in the other hemisphere and Taiwan yeah. sitting there, we should have it should have an answer to that. Mm. You should have an answer about AUKUS. It should be clear. But, you know, they were really, I, I think one of the things I noticed was that they were really focused on banning sugar and phones in schools. But when it came to are we combat ready and yep. what do we want to do with defence and what about AUKUS, they were completely pathetic, both what of do them. You, do you think that too, Robert? I mean, you, effectively you do because I think, you know, basically, Josie, Robert and I have yeah, agreed. I, that- I agree with what Josie's saying. I just uh, was struck. I, I don't think our media are doing a good enough job, though, in pushing them on these issues because... New Zealand's critically dependent on what's called the international rules-based order. We trade with over 100 countries in the world, and uh, we are we probably more than most developed countries depend a lot on the international environment in which we carry out our activities. And I appreciate they they responded in a low energy way to the questions asked, but I think it was incumbent on Paddy to really press them. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are big issues. Is New Zealand doing enough to support Ukraine, which has been invaded by a neighbouring authoritarian regime, we have a huge stake in the outcome. Because make no mistake, if Putin keeps land as a result of that illegal invasion, that will have reverberations that hurt this country. Uh, You know, and the other thing is that uh, AUKUS, um, this is a a potentially momentous decision for this country. I was saying to Bernard and and Peter, I was in Australia recently, and one of the revelations for me uh, was that the Australians are really getting serious reservations about being yeah. part of AUKUS. And this is not getting talked about very much. And they are really worried on two fronts. Firstly, the cost. Uh, the military are now are having to cut back 
on their everyday exercises and routine activities to accommodate this huge uh, payment of between 268 Australian billion and 368. And as one Australian observer put it, it's going to come in way above that. And the second point mm. that's really worrying Australian commentators, uh, not Australian commentators, but some people near close to the action policymakers, is the fact um, that it's very much a huge bet on linking Australia to America at a time when America may not have the Biden administration in place after 2024. Yeah. Uh, many Australians are as worried as New Zealanders are about the prospect of President Trump. I was just Googling because it turns out Paul Keating was right. You know, do you remember when, when Australia yeah. signed up for Walker Steel? And he was just hysterically amusing. He always is. You just, I wish there was politicians like that now. Um, you know, I mean, he just, I think he labelled it the worst deal in all of history, the worst international decision by a Labour government. Um, you know, our bloke spending, has to spend all the money. I mean, he was just scathing about yeah. it. Um, and now, turns out he's... Josie, I'm going to do a small, I'm going to do a small segue here because we have to talk about some New Zealand politics. But Robert... As usual, you're absolutely more than welcome to stay in, please. But Josie, I was. Well, fact, I'd love to because no, it's no, no, please do, I, please I, do. I, this, this is politics this is, is great. Well, especially I, I think what we what this country needs is a sort of four way podcast of broadly thoughtful people, particularly you know Bernard, me, you two, that deals with these important issues, but also has a slight edge of of fun with it. Josie, I was really struck listening to um, Winston Peters today, which I mean, I mean, also I hate the way we all call him Winston. Um, because I thought he was being uh, racist. I thought he was, which is fantastic to have a Maori politician able to sort of say things that nobody else could possibly say is pretty extraordinary. But I was also reminded that if you talk to anybody at the foreign ministry, he was, since Norman Kirk, probably the best foreign minister from their point of view, because he actually got uh, foreign policy. He got money for them, you know, is it, would it be so bad if he was our foreign minister again? It absolutely wouldn't. I, I was uh, running Council for International Development then, and, um, yeah, we met with him. We'd meet with him every month or so, a couple of months. Um, he, yeah, he increased the aid budget. The thing I noticed about him working with him in that aid um, area was he'd, arri he'd arrive in a very hot Pacific country with his full pinstripe suit on. And um, and I remember, you know, people think he's being a wide boy when he does that. And I remember he said to me, I do it because I'm showing respect yes. for every leader I visit and every country I visit, whether it's, whether it's you know, President Biden or whether it's, um, you know, the President Fiamme of Samoa, I'm going to wear my pinstripe suit and show them the best respect. So he's absolutely loved in the Pacific. Yeah. He also doesn't he sweat like Prince, Prince Andrew as well, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I say he's probably almost more popular than Jacinda was at the beginning in the Pacific. Yeah. You know, Robert, what do you what do you think about the idea of of? I mean, I I think he's angling for finance minister, of course, but of course he would accept. Do, do you think? Well, I I think he was, but I think he's blotted his copybook since then. There was a secret deal between Labour and New Zealand First, which has never been revealed, which had a Russian clause. Mister Peters wanted to resume the free the suspended free trade agreement. Ah. And he's got, certainly got a soft spot for populism. I mean, if you look at Mr... The reason I think he's blotted his copybook and why some international observers may not take him as seriously now as they did back in 2017 is because if you look at it, some of the comments he's made, the last election he had a lot of Brexiteers around him to try mm -hmm. to get him over the 5%. I mean, and secondly, look at his campaign now. He's talking about taking the country back, which is by definition a non-deliverable promise. It's yeah. cynical <laughs> politics. It's straight yeah. out the Trump playbook. It's exactly what Mr. Trump says. And uh, it, it, I think that's really cynical. And uh, I think it doesn't impress international observers. I get what you're saying, but I think that there's a difference between how um, Winston Peters campaigns and how he behaves when he's in government. And you're right about the Russian yeah, thing. That's true. Someone who's being sanctioned by the Russians, and not only that, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, tweeted out a picture of me with a target on it. So, what? Um, yeah. So I'm really? I don't want a foreign minister who's going to be friendly to the Russians. Yeah. yeah just oh, say. Well, this this will widen our audience when we manage to, you know, make sure that all the the Russian uh, hackers and and um, the teams there are dialing into the hoon to make sure they hear what you have to say. Yeah, yeah. Free speech, but not for bots. That's my mantra. <laughs>
Bernard, you know, you wanted to move heavily into New Zealand politics. Well, I've actually, thank you so much, actually, both of you, though, for, I mean, I'm not caught closing this, but I'm so glad we've addressed the sort of domestic geopolitical, because it's so important and I just don't see it being dealt with adequately here. So, so that was very interesting about the idea of Winston as foreign minister again, because one of the great things for both parties is that they get his votes, obviously, but they get to kick him overseas so he gets out of the yep. way. And and from a you know and he actually does have a track record as a, as a foreign minister who achieved things and you know we were all a little bit surprised when he did the Pacific pivot. Mm. Turned out he was right. Right. Turned out. And actually turned out he was very right. right. And actually, yep. you know, if you look at uh, how New Zealand has changed its 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 vibe on foreign affairs in the last five or six years, that Pacific pivot was prescient and uh, mm -hmm. certainly has helped us a bit in this process of contest between the United States and, and, and China. One quickie, though, Bernard, yeah. I'm not sure you're getting him out of the way by appointing him foreign minister, because uh. I think we've had a bit of a tradition in this country of appointing foreign minister for, for domestic political reasons. The fact of the matter is the world sees exactly what's going on in New Zealand. We're not mm. some remote country which is cut off from everywhere else. Globalisation mm -hmm. has eliminated that factor. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he may, it may, may well be the outcome. Who knows what the outcome of the next election is? And he would have experience. He would come across as an experienced foreign policy player. And, and, and that may well be a credible appointment. But, I, I, you know, I don't think he'll be out of the way because in the sense that New Zealand sometimes makes these appointments on the basis that you know, this person knows where all the bodies are buried in the respective party that they've been selected by, and therefore let's get this operating into foreign affairs and we can forget about them. Foreign affairs, in my view, is probably the second or third most important appointment after the Prime Minister. Yeah, but at least he's good at... I mean, like I said, if, I talk to, if you talk to people in MFAT, or even if you read the MFAT oh, history, yeah. which I slogged my way through um, for North and South, you know, he comes across very, very well. Yeah, no, it's very light. And you've got to think in that New Zealand First Caucus, so they're polling, you know, 5 to 6%. There's three, and, you, you know, I know you, you were saying before, Peter, he's being racist, there are three Māori mm. um, names went through them top today, of that yep. list. Yep. So it's going to be extraordinary. You, get, we're, you know, it, it, we're at a very interesting moment, I think, in Māori politics, actually, yes. that you've got, you're mm. not... Got a consistent Māori view of what Māori politics is. You've got the um, some of the Iwi Leaders Forum and Māori, and, and Māori academics coming out today accusing Winston of being a racist. Um, and you've got you know Shane and Winston and and you know the um, uh, top three Māori people on the New Zealand First list going uh, bugger yeah. off. Well, but isn't, you know, this, so isn't this we we should no? But that idea though that that you've got a, a minority that is strong enough to have different views is such a sort of classic. You see it with all sorts of minorities. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. You're not... And it, and it suddenly gives that minority much more power. You're seeing it in Britain as well. Um, mm. At the leaders' debate, uh, you know, you're, you're always asked afterwards at the leaders' debate, who do you think won the debate? Which I think is a sort of the wrong question because it's like the question really is who did, did each leader do what they needed to do? in terms of whatever their narrative is. But you'd have to say, if we were going to say who was the leader, who was the winner of the leaders' debate, Winston Peters. And who are we talking he wasn't about even now? There. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say, give you two comments? One one was from uh, one of our followers, Hamish McNaughton, who said, I know someone is going to vote for, for him, presumably Winston, because he doesn't play the race card. And another one, John Graham says, um, the rehabilitation of Winston is starting to rival Rambuka's, which is actually quite good. Very good. I might steal yeah. that one. I don't think we've ever done a coup, to be fair. No, no. no. Uh, Josie, um, you uh, have been overseas and have come back. And while you were overseas, you were managing a panel with uh, Keir Starmer. And I was curious to hear your view on how you think Chris Hipkins is doing um, leading Labour and, and how he's sort of fitting into the the, the left, centre-left politics of what we're seeing around the world. It's funny, Bernard, because, the, I mean, everybody talks about overseas, they talk about Keir Starmer, they're worried that he's a bit boring, that he, uh, you know, could run at a pigeon and the pigeon wouldn't fly away. You know, it, it's not... <laughs> it's not um, but actually, what, what you're seeing from UK Labour, and you're seeing it 
um, in the Democrats. You're seeing it in, in some of the social democratic parties. Because uh, the other person on that panel was the Prime Minister of Norway, Jonas mm. uh, Jonas Gastora. I think that's how you pronounce it. And he's, he was Good really um, impressive. And, and they are um, they're coming up with ideas. So Keir Starm, and this is what Labor's not doing here, I feel, yeah. right? So they're coming up with new industrial plans. They're talking, Keir Starmer was talking about this axis of insecurity and, and putting climate in a bigger vision about both insecurity but also about making people's lives better yeah. off, right? So he doesn't talk about green jobs. He talks about jobs. Doesn't talk about climate change. Talks about economic change. Um, and this is all about, you know, the, the left trying to position the climate in, in, a, in a much bigger, wider, inclusive vision mm -hmm. that's going to bring working class people with Mind them. Mind you, he does, and, st he does still look like the, um, the bald eagle and the Muppets. Yeah, he, he was it's funny. I sat in a room with him and 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 Jonas before the um, panel, and it was really interesting watching two progressive leaders in the world today talking about this stuff and saying, "Hey, if you need any help, let me know." And you know, it was it, it, you have a sense that there's a there's a yeah, obviously the sort of Labour parties and Social Democratic parties, you know, they they come together at these conferences and they support each other, um, and I haven't really felt that there's anything coming from New Zealand Labour in terms of contributing to the to the political theory about what the left is now. Mm. What is the big idea mm. on the left? You know, it's not, if, if it's not, um, you know, we have the, the last big idea we had was redistribution of wealth, you know. So, so well, what's, the, well. what's the idea? <laughs> yeah, um, we haven't done yeah, that yet, didn't. turns out. <laughs> no. Josie, you know, this extraordinary statement by the Conservative Home Secretary that multiculturalism is dead. Oh, my gosh, and yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it seemed to me this was extraordinary given uh, the, her own background and also that of the, the Conservative Prime, Prime Minister. Minister. Yeah. They, they're, mm. they're almost a, a demonstration that multiculturalism has been successful. Yeah. But uh, it, it, Keir Starmer was very measured in his response to that. And many, I think many of his supporters expected much more of a full-throated, sort of uh, much more energetic denunciation than that came. So he, he seems a very pragmatic, measured person. I think, Robert, he's been very careful because, you know, he's yeah. there way, way ahead in the polls. It's a, it's a bit like national here, but even more so. And they've got a longer time to blow it. So um, I yeah. think that's where the reputation about, you know, he, he someone said he, he, he looks like the next thing that come out of his mouth is, um, and have you chosen a hymn for the service? You know, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when, when your rivals are eating each other like a pair of snakes... You know, or fighting like cats yeah. in a sack, whichever metaphor you choose, you just let them stand back and let them let them do it. He, he's picking his issues, and he's been very careful to stick to. He feels that the Labour Party in the UK and Labour parties elsewhere, and I would argue the Labour Party here, have moved too far away from working people. Yes. So he's focused on the, you know, the the back to basics bread and butter stuff, and he's not getting pulled into too much. So he is talking about immigration, though, Robert, and that was he announced that um, just before we did our panel, they he, he'd been in Europe and he announced this new policy of um, dealing with child traffickers. Um, mm. Doing a deal with the EU, you know, mm. um, turning the boats back, but doing, but taking a bigger percentage of of um, migrants, refugees, and so on. So he was being tough on on migration in in a way that would be compatible with, you know, a sort of centre right view yeah. as well. It's the two party system though in the UK, and now enables the opposition to play almost win by default because the Liberal Democrats, unfortunately, in Britain have seemed to be. Well, they're winning a lot of local elections, mm. but they don't seem to be very effective at the parliamentary level. And, you know, I was struck by the fact that Mr Starmer would virtually not comment on the elephant in the room in British politics, which is the devastation done to the Britain by Brexit. Brexit. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's, he, as you say, he's very careful not to do anything that could upset his party. I, I think I've told you possibly before, Robert and, and Josie, about a, a cartoon from Private Eye from some years ago, which I will now email to you all, but which is a cartoon of a people in a cocktail party with an elephant in the room, and they're completely covered in elephant poo. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the caption is something like, I'm terribly sorry, it really is just an elephant. Um, <laughs> Our very intelligent friend of friend of the pod, as somebody people say, Ben Reed, who's a futurist down in Christchurch, said Luxon could still do a deal with Raf Manji and Elam. Elam? 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 Uh, yeah, Elam. And that's yeah. Winston Newton. Option is sitting there right in front of him. 
Top would bring three to four MPs and sit on cross benches. I mean, as usual, Ben is playing three-dimensional chess. And I did see your eye-rolling, Josie, and we'll come back. Car- carry on. No, no, no. I, I, actually, I actually think this is something that hasn't made any of the uh, public discussion. And it's um, surprising that it hasn't because... Christopher Luxon has a particular problem in that he doesn't want to work with Winston and Winston is obviously doesn't want to work with Labour. So at the moment, he's going to have to do a deal with Winston and it's the last thing he wants. He also wants some sort of leverage and having another option and it, that isn't uh, Te Party Māori would be uh, pretty sensible. So the idea of a nod and a wink to the voters of Ilam, you know, Give me top rather than Winston. I think there'd be quite a few voters in Ireland who'd mm. be quite keen on that too. There was a poll that came out recently where everyone got very excited because it looked like um, Raf Manji was um, ahead in Ireland. And then it turned out the poll wasn't quite what it said. Um, so I think it's highly unlikely that, that he'll win. I mean, almost impossible. And I think it's too late for National to give, give him a mm-hmm. nod now to do the cup of tea. But I, mm. I disagree, Bernard, in that I think... Um, I think for Luxon, I think he actually wants New Zealand first there because even though he will not say this, but he wants to have some kind of pushback to act. Um, Uh And and I think it gives him options, a bit like John Key, who did deals with everybody, um, Te Pāti Māori or Māori Party as it was then, um, the Greens. Sorry. Um, <laughs> nope. But you know, I mean, that's it's very clever politics in MMP to have to be able to have options on either side of you, and and I think that for New Zealand First and Act, I'm not. I mean, I think there is personal animosity there, but it suits them both to attack each other because a strong New Zealand First brings out the Act vote. A strong Act it brings out you know Labour voters going right. I've better vote New Zealand First so that there's a there's a damper on on the far right in this next government. So it's a, there's a bit of, um, yeah, three-dimensional chess going on, but I think it suits... God, they're so intelligent. They're devils. Cunning devils. But, yeah, but um, he can't be using this coalition of chaos line anymore. <laughs> yeah, <'cause>, exactly. Boy, <laughs> unless he brings is... in the gangs. Because I think we talked a few months ago, a few weeks ago, when he said that really awful thing about bringing the gangs into the coalition of chaos. It was like, oh, it's going to be Party Maori and it's going to be the Greens and, and the gangs. Yeah. It's going to be a coalition. And I just thought that was so naughty. And now, you know, he's going to be bringing in all these rosters. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the, the that's the downside, though, Josie, isn't it? He, it would, I go, it's a great point you made. He, he would, it would give Christopher Luxon some leverage by playing one against the other acts and New Zealand first against each other. On the other hand, it may reduce his policies to a state of almost in, incoherence. And because, I mean, I, I, I think there's some deep differences there. It's not just personality. And acts got a pretty strong right of centre position, which New Zealand first seems to be quite resistant to uh, in mm. some areas. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think they're fishing in the same pool a bit. That's been part of the problem that they're they're oh, both fishing for the sort of disenfranchised, yep. you know, anti vaxxers They're flirting with it. They're not. They're not quite going there. And the and the anti, you know, the sort of fears the about the co-governance. Yeah, but you're right, mm. though, Robert. There is, the, you know, New Zealand First is a little bit kind of old labour in terms of its, you mm. know, it's got working class appeal. It's it talks about manufacturing, about bringing jobs back to the regions. You know, that's all very lefty stuff. I think they want to re- they reopen the freezing works, Petoni, then they'll be set. Yeah, well, I, I think they've actually got more in common than they have um, not, which which okay. is is interesting. But you also have to say the coalition of chaos is on the other side too, right? I mean, that, and I think. Sure. In some ways, um, if I was national, I'd be going through that Green Party list because Greens are doing really well. Fourteen percent—they're going to get yeah. a whole lot more people come. Um, you know, who, who's on that? Who's going to come in that might be problematic for them? It is interesting, though. In the past, we've anticipated similar co- uh, coalitions of chaos, and they haven't transpired. I mean, a lot of people thought that the Labour New Zealand First coalition wouldn't work between 2017 2020. Actually, it worked reasonably mm. well. So maybe you're right. Maybe from Luxon's point of view, if he has to have a coalition with New Zealand first and act, uh, they will all sober up once they're into power. You know, we're all mm. tigers out of office. But once you've got the responsibility of power, then yeah. that can act as a bit of an incentive not to rock the boat. So should we do the skateboard? Do you want to stay for the skateboarding dog? Yes, please. I think it's time for the skateboarding dog. The one, the one that I thought was a good skateboarding dog this week was the... Um, Speaker of the Canadian Parliament um, calling out mm. a uh, Ukrainian war hero 
and getting applause from the entire parliament before he realised that it was in fact he had in fact been a Nazi. <laughs> and I just thought <laughs> it was just one of those things where you thought, yeah. "What the fuck are you thinking?" You you know, who, who was on your staff that didn't look up this guy and realise that? I mean, because the, the the convergence of these issues are just so complicated. If only we had professors of international history and extremely skilled experts in international affairs to guide us in these things. Uh, we could have saved this problem, you know, if only uh, Justin Trudeau had given us a call exactly. and dialed into or, the hoon. Well, this is what I think. Been fine. Christia Freeland, our old colleague at the FT, Bernard, Deputy well, Prime is, Minister and great. herself, a Ukrainian Jewish person. Yeah, she's an amazing person. Yeah. Not the nicest person to work for, but I respect her immensely. But she must have just about had a fucking coronary with that. And and also Trudeau, who was there, who who I have to say, you get, he does have this slightly Ken doll persona. Oh. I mean, he's mm. you know he's a good-looking guy, and he's wearing tight jeans and a big buckled belt, and he sort of stands with his legs apart and gives a good speech, and you're thinking this is very. Um, Casa Doja, um, yeah, Ken Dong. I, I did notice a picture of him with um, with uh, Modi the other day, where he seems to be wearing kind of novelty socks, and I just thought they were right. in the same. They were in the same well, no, room. No, it was during the G20 before he yeah. came back and shat on Modi from from. Um, oh, we should yeah. we should do an entire story. I have to do my um, tsunami of name dropping from this Montreal conference because I went out to dinner with a bunch of people in Santa Marin. Um, hung out with, took career advice from David Miliband, um, yeah, and hung Jesus. out with Tony Blair Steady and on. So, but Don't yeah. you think, though, that I mean, David, yeah. David Miliband runs an organisation called um, the International Crisis Group, I think it's called, which makes it, he sounds to me as though he works for the Thunderbirds. Mm. Yeah, no, International Rescue. <laughs> international yeah, he Rescue. Does. He and he works for the Thunderbirds. <laughs> <laughs> he's not as wooden as his brother, but, yeah. All right. No. Oh, no, he's great. I, I'm very fond of David Miliband. Yeah. I think he's great, yeah. On that note, where we're thinking about... Um, Thunderbirds, I go. We shall go. It's been wonderful to see you, see you all. Thank you so much. I'm back. I'm back. I'm not throwing up, and we will be back again next Friday. Kakita on everyone. Thank you for not throwing up on the podcast. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank see you. you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.